Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. There goes. There goes. Henri Bergson. Henri Bergson. He's a great opponent. He's a great opponent. Of Cartesian dualism. Of Cartesian dualism. He rejects the. He rejects the. Reduction of psychological phenomena to physical state. And insist that, insist that there is no point of contact between the extended and the unextended. And there goes, there goes Edmund, Husserl, Edmund Husserl, sitting all alone, sitting all alone with his transcendental ego. Oh, why did he? Oh, why did he? Reject the non-ecological pre-personal model of consciousness of the philosophical investigations. Reject the non-ecological pre-personal model of consciousness of the philosophical investigations. To us. To us. That was an abomination. That was an abomination. And here's the midterm. Oh, right on. All right. If so, first of all, that's Dr. Hugh Blumenfeld. He wasn't a doctor when he recorded that. Uh, and I said to our, my producer, Lily Tyson, today, if we play this at the beginning of the show and we can't get two philosophers to laugh at it, there's something really wrong here. Uh, let me tell you who our two philosophers are uh, here at the top of the show. Uh, Stephen Nadler is the co-author of When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, How Philosophy Can Save Us from Ourselves, and a philosophy professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I basically could apply the same thing to Larry Shapiro. All of the same things are true about Larry Shapiro, although— Well, that- our, our, our names differ. Your name's different, exactly. I was going to say it would be a logical fallacy to say that you were the same person simply because you both have the same qualifications and titles and stuff like that. That would be a massive error in this philosophy of reference. <laughs> there we go. So oh, we're all warmed up and ready to get going here. So um, I, first of all, uh, we are here to talk about the book, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, How Philosophy Can Save Us from Ourselves. We are, I think, in the middle of what is widely described now as an epistemic crisis, uh, which is kind of amazing that the word epistemic is being widely used in almost any context. Context. So, Larry, as we begin here, the the book starts out looking at a whole bunch of things that are being believed in sort of larger and larger audience sizes, uh, whether it's uh, misinformation about COVID and COVID vaccines, or whether it's a uh, failure to accept what appeared to be completely legitimized election results, whether it's QAnon, whether it's the notion that the Sandy Hook tragedy uh, did not really occur, um, the uh, the belief that 9-11 did not unfold as the official accounts of it uh, say that it did. Um, these are all things that seem very, very obviously wrong and, and sometimes outlandishly wrong. And yet they seem to be acquiring adherence as opposed to losing them. So maybe just start there. I mean, why would that be the case? Why would we be see, the, see the ranks swelling uh, in, in those particular uh, cohorts? I, I think what we see is uh, 
people making the same mistakes that people have always been making. People are subject to various kinds of fallacious reasoning, things like confirmation bias, where a confirmation bias involves looking at only the evidence that supports your belief and not looking at the evidence that tells against it. So people have always suffered from this kind of bias. And there are also other sorts of biases people suffer from, for instance, not not thinking about uh, the likelihood of an event uh, when trying to decide how much support there is for belief in such an event. But what's unusual about today uh, distinguishes it from past centuries of bad thinking is that we have social media that's able to to magnify uh, at exponential rates the kinds of evidence that people think is uh, the sort of evidence that should be supporting their their beliefs. And so you combine these biases and reasoning with a, a wealth of, of bad and fallacious sorts of evidence, and you get the kinds of epistemic crises that we see today. All right. So I'm going to do something incredibly cruel to two people who work at a university in Wisconsin, uh, but I think it also might be fun. So um, last year, no, right around this time, not right around this time last year, a person named Aaron Rodgers uh, was asked by the press if he had been <laughs> if he had been vaccinated. Oh, I know where you're going. Yes. I know where you're going. Yes. And he, so his answer was, "Yes, I'm immunized." Now it turned out he hadn't been vac- va- vaccinated. When that came out, some of his thoughts were, "Look." I'm not some sort of anti-vax flat earther. I am somebody who's a critical thinker. You guys know me. I march to the beat of my own drum. I believe strongly in bodily autonomy and the ability to make choices for your body, not to have to acquiesce to some woke culture or crazed group of individuals who say you have to do something. Health is not a one-size-fits-all for everybody, and for me, it involved a lot of study in the off-season, much like the study I put into hosting Jeopardy or the weekly study I put in uh, into preparing for a game. Uh, he also indicated that uh, he said, I've been taking see, he, he had tested positive at this point. I don't know if I made that point for COVID. And he said, I've been taking since that time, I've been taking monoclonal antibodies, ivermectin, zinc, vitamin C and D, uh, HCQ, that's hydroxychloroquine. And I feel pretty incredible. He also said that when he contracted the vi- virus, he consulted with podcast host Joe Rogan about what to do in terms of treatments. So. Like we could do four hours. Oh, about- <laughs> we could do yeah, four wait, hours wait, about so, this. So, Go who's ahead. Aaron Rodgers? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so, not going to work, Stephen. I'm sorry. Yeah. That that is not. I, <laughs> Go ahead, Larry. I, I broke up with Aaron. I broke up with Aaron Rodgers on that day. Uh, I'm a Packers fan, and I, I always had uh, an admiration and for for Aaron Rodgers. I love watching him play, but the idea that that Aaron Rodgers is, is qualified to do the kind of research that 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 he claims to have been able to do. I mean, I, I don't claim to know how to to to, to throw a football. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't I don't claim to know how to call plays and audibles. And I don't see why Aaron Rodgers believes he's qualified to uh, to come to conclusions that fly in the face of of everything that medical science is telling us it's 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 a disgrace that 
that someone would use his position to spread this sort of misinformation. So let's, Although, let's I guess, yeah, go ahead, Stephen, go ahead. Yeah. I was gonna say what, what we're seeing here with Aaron Rodgers is just um, a really glaring example, which can be used as a reductio ad absurdum or refutation of all celebrity endorsements. I mean, why should we believe anything just because this individual who happens to be well-known and whose face is plastered all over the place um, has said it's the best product ever. Uh, in the case of Aaron Rodgers, um, you know, he's by virtue of being Aaron Rodgers, him coming out in this way only encourages more bad thinking. But this kind of gullibility or irrational attachment to beliefs in the absence of, of really substantial evidence goes right across the whole world of advertising, where people take the words of people of others, celebrities who are not experts and who really know nothing about what they're what they're endorsing. Right. But it's also going to be interesting from a lot of different points of view that are covered in your book. So, I mean, we can start with the notion of epistemological stubbornness, uh, because Larry confronted with all of this, confronted with the fact that, A, he had misled the press, if not lied to them. Uh, and he had been in person in briefing rooms with vaccinated reporters who thought he was vaccinated and, and, and confronted with a whole bunch of other things. He sort of doubled down on it all. And he tried to make the people who were accusing him of some kind of malfeasance ashamed. Uh, and he, and he called them a woke mob. He claimed he was, he was being caricatured as a anti-vax flat earther. Um, and, and so could we talk a little bit about this. I mean, one possible response might have been, you know what? I screwed up and I'm going to get vaccinated or I screwed up and I'm going into isolation, you know, for 14 days or something. So talk about that idea of stubbornness. Uh, well, actually, this is a I'm glad you brought up this case. It really is a good case because it allows us to talk about the, the two kinds of stubbornness that we focus on in the book. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about one kind and then Steve can cover the other kind. Uh, so there's epistemic stubbornness, which is a kind of stubbornness that displays itself in a resistance to evidence, a resistance to reason. And what Aaron Rodgers is doing is he's, he's sticking to his guns here about a belief he has. He claims that this belief is based on evidence, but actually there's far more evidence against the kinds of things he's believing, against the efficacy of hydrochloroquine, uh, against the idea that he's immunized himself successfully with zinc. Uh, there's so much evidence opposed to what he believes. Uh, so he's exhibiting epistemic stubbornness by continuing to, to cling to these beliefs despite the wealth of evidence against them. And then, then the other kind of stubbornness we talk about is a, a normative sort. And maybe, Steve, you could say something about that. Sure. Uh, I mean, normative stubbornness, you, you, one might think, well, okay, what's the big problem with epistemic stubbornness? Let people believe what they want to believe. Um, really, what's the harm done except maybe to the individual, him or herself? But the problem is that so much of what we decide to do and how we counsel others, and even if you're going into the broader social and political domain, the policies we advocate for, the policies that get instituted, um, it, when we go beyond mere beliefs and talk about normative stubbornness, it's this um, carrying over of these irrational and unjustified beliefs into the things we do, the choices we make, the policies we support, um, the decisions that we follow in our everyday actions. Um, a good case is people who um, almost uh, compulsively follow a rule, no matter what the circumstances, even if in those circumstances following the rule uh, 
is leads to consequences that are contrary to what either the person wants to achieve or what the rule is supposed to uphold. So, you know, we, we need to make exceptions to rules and a normatively sovereign person um, stands by those rules no matter what, just as the epistemically sovereign person stands by their beliefs no matter what. Well, and Stephen, um, it also seems as though, so Cicela Bach in her classic work, Lying, she, at one point she says, look, if everything was, stood a 50-50 chance of being either true or a lie, and we had to personally validate or or discount everything that way, I mean, we would be paralyzed. There's sort of no way to function in an environment like that uh, if you personally have to verify every statement you, you encounter, even from the people around you. We have to assume that certain people are telling us the truth. Uh, and, and we also have to believe that certain consensuses, uh, if that's the plural of consensus, uh, are also true. But I feel like we're in an environment now where because, in fact, you can get confirmation. I mean, you know, Aaron Rodgers went to the quote-unquote expert Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan is a former comedian and mixed martial arts guy who kind of does this Chopping It Up podcast. It is the most popular podcast in America by an enormous margin. I, the Daily or whatever's coming in second is way behind Joe Rogan. He doesn't know anything. He doesn't have any qualifications. And yet somehow or other, that's a person that somebody like Aaron Rodgers and apparently tens of millions of other people would turn to. So can we talk about that, the role of ac- the quote unquote expert in all this? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, we're certainly not advocating that everybody become an expert in every field in which they have to develop beliefs. That would be unrealistic. It'd be impossible. Um, we have our specialties um, and we have our favorite domains and we pursue uh, a kind of expertise or proficiency in those. Um, and yet there are experts out there. And so even if you're not going to be the one to seek out all the evidence possible to justify your beliefs, there are people out there who have done the work for you, scientists, um, philosophers, I might add, uh, you know, really investigative journalists. All of these people constitute a kind of community of expertise. And what's a little bit frightening about American society today is this rejection of expertise as somehow elitist and not something that's relevant for making the most basic decisions like who we're going to elect uh, in our public offices. So, no, we're not advocating that everybody should always, in every instance, seek out all the evidence possible for their beliefs. But there is evidence out there, and it's been collected and published and vetted by people who know what they're doing. Yeah, so, Larry, yeah, the term evidentialism is used in the book. And, and, uh, I, I try to do that. Uh, I try to do it. I did it today, for example. I mean, I did it kind of in a negative way. So uh, because one thing I try to do is police a lot of false COVID claims. But I I try to look at other stuff, too, including things that might come from my side of the political spectrum. So there was a, a guy on, he's I think he's a TV writer. He was on Twitter today, and he was showing a photo of Donald Trump and Melania. And he said, you know, one of the things I miss about the Trump years is the way everybody just pretended not to notice that they kept subbing in a different Melania uh, and we just, you know, pretended that wasn't really happening. Um, And I I actually wrote back, I said, this is not helpful. There is no evidence to support this idea, except that she looks kind of a little different in some photos, which is true of everybody. Look at 10 photos of yourself. You don't always look the same. Um, You know, but, but there's a problem here, which I, I think is sometimes there's evidence. For, uh, let me give a more specific example, and you can just say whatever you want. But um, 
like 9-11 truthers, and I'm not, I don't want to call them that. Truthers is the wrong word. The people who basically deny the official ber- version uh, of of 9-11. We call them 9-11 liars. 9-11 liars. Except that the driving force behind them is a group called, I think, Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. You know, and, and they have a lot of videos that look like evidence. And they're architects and engineers. And there's a lot of them. And their whole argument is that using their expertise to examine the evidence, it, they can tell that explosives were used in one or more of those buildings to create the illusion of, or to create the effect of collapse. So how about that? I mean, you know, if you're an evidentialist, maybe you should believe architects and engineers. Uh, you, you'll always get a, a group with some expertise who are as susceptible to conspiracy theories and confirmation bias as, as anyone. Being, a, being an expert doesn't give you immunity to these kinds of of, of instances of bad reasoning. Just to, just to amplify your case a little bit, there, was, uh, there is a, a philosopher named James Fetzer, uh, a very mm-hmm. famous, highly regarded philosopher of science, who uh, denies um, the Sandy Hook shooting was uh, genuine. And he's also argued that the Kennedy assassination was done by the FBI. I think he's also a a 9-11 doubter. I don't know how he is on the Holocaust. It wouldn't surprise me if he denied the Holocaust. But so you get these people who have training and expertise, and yet they're as prone to the bad sorts of reasoning as as any conspiracy theorist. So, So the thing you have to worry about is, as you said, there are these experts that a conspiracy theorist can draw on and say, look, here, here's good evidence on my, on my behalf. And here, I think what you have to do is look at the preponderance of evidence. And once you start digging deeper, you'll see that for every claim that uh, 9-11 was an inside job, you'll find a thousand claims and, and greater preponderance, preponderance of evidence about what actually happened about the uh, that the planes that flew into it setting off the explosions. So obviously we also live in an environment now where people who believe set of facts A when confronted with set of facts B, either by, you know, legacy media, New York Times, Washington Post, CBS, or by fact-checking organizations ranging from the Washington Post and Glenn Kessler to Pointer.org to factcheck.org to PolitiFact, they just discredit those things, right? They say, well, I mean, there there is a sort of a begging the question thing that goes on there. Why do I still believe set of facts A, even though those people just told me they're wrong? Because those people are part of the problem. They're the people who are lying to me. And, and, and I'm wondering, Larry, how we get around that, how we deal with that issue. I think you have to be very careful about studying the credentials of, of the kinds of things you're reading. Uh, if, if you're reading about a new kind of medicine that's going to cure, your, cure, cure you of COVID or prevent COVID, you want to check to see whether the people promoting this medicine have some sort of financial stake in it. You want to read whether the publications, the research that has been done to support these claims has been refereed uh, by responsible, uh, has, 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 has been through refereeing processes. Uh, and it is getting harder, I think. I can understand why many people just don't know what to believe anymore because 
social media being what it is, the 24-hour news cycle, we're being bombarded with all sorts of contrary reports. And it takes more effort today than it used to, to sort through all this information to find out uh, which is the reliable information. And I, I don't have I don't have a good answer for how this can be done easily. It was, Colin, yeah, the, go ahead. Colin, this what you uh, described really points to the to a deeper problem in this pandemic of rationality. I mean, it's one thing to uh, face the challenge of assessing your beliefs in the face of evidence and trying to decide um, whether your belief is justified. But the deeper problem, and I think Larry's right, is more difficult, but is maybe more insidious is the uh, refusal to assess not your beliefs in the face of evidence, but the sources of evidence themselves. It's sort of a second order problem. Um, we're not examining our beliefs, but we need to reflectively and critically examine the evidence on the basis of which we're going to examine our beliefs. And I think people, um, given the, the number of sources of information and the way it's increasing, and perhaps a lack of education in assessing these sources, uh, people don't know who to believe. I think also there's a problem with people failing to understand the structure of scientific knowledge, the structure uh, of um, of reaching the truth about something. Uh, and, and, you know, if you're more familiar with it, you understand that it's a process often of trying out some things, getting them wrong, correcting your mistakes. Uh, and I, I think once you start doing that, you start to lose the confidence of a certain group of people. I'm going to give you an example. This is uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, needs no introduction, but very early in the pandemic. It's January of 2020. He's doing a coronavirus news conference. Uh, this is A3, Cat A3. We would really like to see the data because if there is asymptomatic transmission. It impacts certain policies that you do regarding screening, etc. But the one thing historically people need to realize that even if there is some asymptomatic transmission, in all the history of respiratory-borne viruses of any type, asymptomatic transmission has never been the driver of outbreaks. The driver of outbreaks is always a symptomatic person. Even if there's a rare asymptomatic person that might transmit, an epidemic is not driven by asymptomatic carriers. So a couple of things here. First of all, one thing that Fauci probably didn't realize is that a number of people would put that clip up on YouTube and probably take out the first statement. We would like to see the data because if there is asymptomatic transmission, it impacts certain policies. Um, and, and also that that clip would survive forever. I mean, he obviously realized pretty soon that that wasn't true and that, in fact, asymptomatic transmission was actually one of the kind of defining characteristics uh, uh, of COVID-19. Uh, and, and so then he had to do that. But there's a way, Stephen, in which knowledge and information flows and changes, but people don't necessarily flow and change with it. They're not necessarily moving at the same pace uh, of the river of knowledge and change. So it's not unheard of to run into that clip on social media now and have some guy say, no, Fauci said asymptomatic transmission can't happen or, or is unlikely to happen or is almost definitely not the driver uh, of this pandemic. And that's kind of a problem, too, because A, people don't get that science gets something wrong and then fixes it if they possibly can. Uh, well, anyway, you, you say more about that, Stephen. No, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and that's why it, and part of the difficulty here and the challenge is not just to consider what sources are being cited, but who's doing the citing. Um, people 
who come across that clip need to ask themselves, well, where, who's showing us this clip and what may or may not be their agenda? Uh, scientists, I mean, experts in science who aren't, uh, let's say, corrupted by any biases, political or otherwise, um, are perfectly honest and even skeptical about the status of their conclusions. Um, they know that coming down the road any day may be some evidence that falsifies their theory. That's how science works. Um, confirmation doesn't mean something has been established as true forever, but rather it has not yet been falsified. That's one of the standard models of science. But unless we can actually ask who is presenting me with this evidence and why are they presenting it to me? What's their background? What's the source? Is it the New York Times? Is it Fox News? Is it some guy at working out of his living room in Omaha, Nebraska? Um, without that kind of critical reflection on the source of the clip or whatever it is we're looking at, we're not really going to be able to honestly assess the evidence. All right. We're going to uh, go to a break here. I, this is the time where I should actually confess I am a lifelong, like, we're like more than 50-year-long Packers fan. Uh, so I have the same problems with Rodgers that you guys have. So um, anyway, let's take a break here. We're going to come back with these uh, two gentlemen. We're going to talk a little bit about, well, can we get better? Can we acquire, you know, wisdom? Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Truthiness. <laughs> now, I'm sure some of the word police, the wordanistas over at Webster's, are going to say, hey, that's not a word. Well, anybody who knows me know that I'm no fan of dictionaries or reference books. They're elitist, constantly telling us what is or isn't true or what did or didn't happen. Who's Britannica to tell me the Panama Canal was finished in 1914? If I want to say it happened in 1941, that's my right. I don't trust books. They're all fact, no heart. And that's exactly what's pulling our country apart today. Because face it, folks, we are a divided nation. Not between Democrats and Republicans or conservatives and liberals or tops and bottoms, no. We are divided between those who think with their head and those who know with their heart. 
that obviously is Stephen Colbert. It's in 2005, and in, I think in a way he saw the way comedians sometimes do, some of our problems coming. Some of our problems were already here in the form that he describes. I'm talking right now uh, to the two authors of When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, Stephen Nadler and Lawrence Shapiro. They're both professors at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So, um, so, Larry, that whole idea has been around for a while. In fact, if you go back even further, in the 1980s during the Iran-Contra crisis, uh, Ronald Reagan went on television and he said that, he said, we did not, I repeat, we did not trade arms for hostages. And then about four months later, when the Tower Commission had investigated this, he had to go back on television. And what he said at the time was something along the lines of, you know, it turns out that we did trade arms for hostages. I said the other thing, but we did. He goes, but we, it turns out that we, we did trade arms for hostages, even though in my heart, I continued to believe that my first statement was true. I mean, he had actually sort of hived <laughs> off two versions of reality. Uh, and, and I do feel as though kind of that notion of authenticity, uh, what, what your gut tells you, it, it's a very powerful conditioning factor in what we believe. So, Larry, can, could you maybe comment on that a little bit? Yep. Do we still have Larry? Larry, are you there? All right. How about you, Stephen? Go ahead. Somebody. Uh, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I'm here. Go ahead, Steve. No, go ahead. I, I, I was. I'm a, I agree with you, Colin. The the gut is a very hard thing to deny. We we get these intuitions. We we get these ideas about how things should be or how things we how how things would go if we wish they go the way we want them to go. And for that reason, we get statements like Reagan's, or we get. Uh, people insisting that there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq when, of course, there aren't any, and trying to resist what we want to be true is sometimes a, a hopeless game. But look, we have the tools, we have the knowledge in order to temper these, these sorts of temptations we have to simply believe what we want to believe. And I, I think we just have to be more careful and sift through the sorts of evidence, look at uh, long-form journalism, see what see what these people on the ground have to say, and uh, resist simply these knee-jerk attractions that we have to views that we like. Right, and it's interesting. You know, you know that, yeah, be, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Stephen. Yeah. I was going to say it also might be possible that um, what they say they believe in their heart, they don't believe in their heart. They're just simply lying. <laughs> well, there's that too. But but I do think you know that the term visceral, you know, it refers to the viscera, to the guts, really. And there's a way in which the more our guts are riled up by something. I mean, nine eleven was a very visceral, penetrative experience for Americans. And so as a result, when people started, including people in Washington, started saying, you know, Saddam Hussein was behind that, which was. Like, absolutely 100% untrue, it was easier to get people to believe it because they were already viscerally aroused and outraged by what had happened so far. So, Stephen, we have just a little bit of time here to talk about the kind of second half of this book where the question is, can we get better? Can we? Are there ways, perhaps even within the world of philosophy, where we can find better tools to interpret reality and to know whether or not what we believe is actually true? I, I think there are. I think basically we are optimists about that. Otherwise, we would have thrown in the towel uh, in teaching philosophy because what philosophy is about, and the subtitle of the book is How Philosophy Can Save Us From Ourselves, it's about teaching people how to be epistemically responsible. That is, how to form their beliefs on the basis of evidence in a, in a um, 
not as necessarily as experts, but in a responsible way, and also how to give up your beliefs in the face of contrary uh, evidence. Earlier, I spoke about a pandemic of irrationality. And what philosophers do is they point out the different ways, not just in which we can be rational, but the many ways in which we can be irrational. And most people don't end up taking a philosophy course until they go to college or university, which, which is a shame, and maybe they don't even take a philosophy course there. But we teach um, our children math and science at a very early age, and those are, those are difficult uh, disciplines. Why aren't we teaching them philosophy? Why aren't we teaching them how to be responsible and good thinkers, which of course is the same thing as teaching them how to be responsible and good citizens and responsible and good human beings. Because a lot of our moral decisions, not just our political decisions, but our, our ethical choices are reflected are, are reflections of how we happen to think. And until we educate um, American children in the canons of good thinking and teach them how to be responsible in forming and abandoning beliefs, I'm really, it's hard to see where the future of this country is going. You know, it's been a weird year here for us on the show. For some reason or other, we've wound up back with the Iliad about four times already this year. And we did an, wound up doing an entire show about the Iliad. But And, and then you guys uh, are citing the Iliad in your book, too. But it's kind of interesting in the Iliad because one of the things that the Greeks do in the Iliad uh, is, and the Trojans for that matter, they have a lot of conversations about this stuff. There, there's a lot of just talking in the Iliad about how are we going to handle this? What's the right way to handle this? What's How, how should we interpret events in a way that gives us a pretty clear picture of what we should do. So, you know, if Agamemnon takes Achilles' concubine, what's the right way to straighten this thing out? What is Achilles, what is Achilles right. entitled to, concubine-wise or compensation-wise? And, Stephen, maybe you can say a little bit more about that, because in some ways I feel like that's a conversation we're also not having. What's the right way to deal with this? We've already decided, based on the categories we've set up for ourselves, what the right thing is and the wrong thing. Well, you're, I like the way that you bring up the Iliad. Um, one of my favorite episodes in the book is from, I think it's in book nine, where Sarpedon, one of the great mm. warriors there, is wondering, should he go into battle? Um, what's the value that's going to move him? Does he want to just live a long life or does he want glory? And so he's reflecting not just on what he should do, but on the values that should be guiding him in making his choices about what he should do. Um, and this is exactly the lesson that Socrates um, harped on throughout his trial. He's saying, look, um, you guys think you're living the best kind of life, but that's because you're not really thinking about what a good life is and what the best kind of life for a human being is. And he has that famous statement where he says the unexamined life is not worth living. What he means is that <clears throat> to live an examined life is to think not just about what you're doing, but about the principles and values that guide you in what you're doing. Um, and again, that's what philosophy is all about. Socrates was the model philosopher here, and that he demands you to think about your life, to reflect on it, and ask the hard questions. And I, I feel like we're, we're living in an environment partly because of the polarization, where that's less likely to happen, where giving an inch feels like giving a mile. I'll give a concrete example. So one of the things that I'm glad I do is occasionally have lunch or dinner with a very, very dear friend, somebody that I, I love a lot, who is politically very different from me. He's a Republican. He worked in both the Reagan and Bush administrations. And, and so you get a different perspective. And one of the things that I 
I realize is that, for example, a person can oppose reproductive choice. It goes back to the title of your book, when, when quote-unquote bad thinking happens to good people. A person can oppose reproductive choice because he or she genuinely believes that abortion is somehow or other tantamount to murder. And, and if you do believe that, then the, the choices you make after that are effectively moral choices. Uh, you, you should do whatever you can to make sure that doesn't happen. But I feel as though, and, and, and you know, so then you get into a conversation. I, I, I have gone on the air and said I really do subscribe to the safe, legal, and rare argument that came out of the Clinton administration. You get people who say, well, why, why do you have to say rare? I mean, there's nothing really wrong with abortion. When you say rare, you're saying they're like there's something wrong with abortion. <laughs> and, and I just feel as though people are very, very unwilling to give an inch. But that seems inherently part of what you're talking about. An examined life is both your own life and the life of people around you. Yeah. And I think, you know, even if your friend happens to disagree with you on a moral matter or a political matter, the key is not so much what they believe, but whether they can defend what they believe, whether they have reasons, compelling reasons. That whenever I come across a person whose views I find really a little bit too extreme, I always want to ask them, why do you believe that? I'm not saying they're wrong. I just want to know what reasons do they have for believing it? Can they justify their beliefs. And again, that's exactly what Socrates was saying. He says, I, I simply go around and demand that each of you give me an account of your life. Um, you, that is, you justify the way you're living. Um, there was a great movie some years ago with Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks called Just Defending yep. Your Life, I think it was called, yep. where they're in a kind of purgatory and they have to explain why they deserve to go to heaven. Well, I think that's the same kind of demand that we should be making of each other not defending whether you should go to heaven or not, but defending the way you're living and justifying your beliefs and using reasons and not just, well, so-and-so said so. All right. We have to stop there. Uh, the book is When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People. Thank you to uh, Stephen Nadler uh, and Lawrence Shapiro. Oh, yeah. And the subtitle is How Philosophy Can Save Us from Ourselves. Uh, go Badgers. Go Packers. At least, you know, most of the Packers. Uh, and thanks for being here today. We're going to talk a little bit about more, more ways to think about your thinking. A little bit more metacognition after this. All right, we are back. Time to say some thank yous. The first goes to Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer today and pretty much every day. Today's episode was produced by the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. That would be Lily Tyson. Uh, and so thanks to both of them. Uh, in our final segment, we're going to look very specifically about how our how we think. <laughs> I think that's a reasonably... You know, that's an easy thing to cover in, in 15 minutes. So uh, joining us now uh, is Wu Gyung An, uh, a, a psychology professor and uh, director of the Thinking Lab at Yale University and the author of the book, Thinking 101, How to Reason Better to Live Better. Welcome to our conversation. 
Thank you for having me here. So let's talk about some of the things that we we do that may lead us into mistakes. Um, Daniel, I think it's Daniel Kahneman who said that overconfidence is like the the most ingrained cognitive bias. If you could get rid of everything else, you'd still have overconfidence. Uh, and and some some way, there are ways in which overconfidence spills over into certain categories. Uh, or, or and so let's talk about what you refer to as fluency. Explain the allure of fluency. So the allure of fluency is that if it basically it just says if it looks easy, then you think it's easy. Mm. And so um, it sounds obvious, uh, but sometimes uh, it can actually cause lots of problems. So, for instance, you know, especially these days, when you watch uh, YouTube, someone cooking very fancy recipe, um, you think you can do it. No, you can't. And I've actually messed up uh, my dog's um, hair cutting because I thought I could do it. <laughs> I couldn't do it. And the problem is, um, especially these days, we uh, encounter books that are highly edited, TED Talks that are practiced for hours and hours. And it creates an illusion that we can all do the same thing. But so we kind of um, make an error of not preparing uh, ourselves uh, before, so for instance, when there's a job interview coming, for instance, then um, we just think of in our head that I can do X, Y, and Z, and then you don't really rehearse it. And once you are starting talking about it, you started like rambling on and on, missing the point, and so on. So um, those things can all happen. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, and I think you can even see that a little bit, you know, at the beginning of the show, we were talking about the quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, who said something that a lot of people say these days, particularly talking about a complex question like COVID-19 and the evolving knowledge and understanding of how the disease works. He said, I did my own research. I do my own research. Um, the, the implication being, I can figure this out. <laughs> I can, I, I'll, I'll figure out what I, who I'm going to consult and what I'm going to look at, and I'll figure this out on my own. And to me, that also seems a little bit of like that idea of fluency. I individually have the capacity to render a judgment on this disease. Right. Um, to me, listening to the first part, um, what occurred to me was the bloodletting. Uh, do you know about bloodletting? I do, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you let the bad blood out and to cure uh, illnesses. And that had been persisted for over 2000 years in the Western society. And George Washington presumably died of bloodletting. And the question is, how could our smart ancestors believe that that's true, that works? And it's because people have a tendency to seek only the information that confirm their beliefs. And once they found those evidence, they don't seek alternative in, uh, disconfirming evidence. So whenever someone gets sick, they try the bloodletting. And because we have an immune system, they get better. So they say, see, bloodletting works. And what's missing here is that they should have tried not doing the bloodletting when someone is sick and whether they still get you know better also. And same thing, um, and the, 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 what I want to point out here is that this sort of confirmation bias is not uh, just like a bad reasoning habit. It's like part of our very adaptive cognitive systems because doing that actually preserves our mental energies and physical energies as well. So for example, you might go to Sap and Shop um, three miles away from your house and found the great apples. So Next time you need good apples, you'll go to the same supermarket. 
you're not, uh, you know, evolved to try a different supermarket just to prove that your supermarket is special or other supermarkets might have better apples or something. Well, if your goal is just to get apples and you go to the same place, and that is part of the reason why we have a confirmation bias. It's just a byproduct of our highly evolved cognitive systems. Right. It's it's part of probably our thousands of years old kind of genetic wiring. There's a way in which it was probably adaptive to 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 take something that appeared to be true and at least had been confirmed once or twice. You can eat those berries. Don't eat those berries over there. Or, or if you can eat those berries, why try those berries over there if they might make you sick um, or, or, or kill you, right? There's sort of a way in which probably it worked pretty well for a while. Exactly. And same with the biased interpretation. So it's not that people who have a views that are different from people, uh, different from us, they're not really like serial killers. They're not really, you know, like pedophilia or whatever. They're not different kinds of people. They're just like uh, us. It's just that they see the world differently because that's their belief system. So it's the problem is because of it's a part of our cognitive system, it's really, really difficult to change these biases. So another thing that you read about is the perils of examples. And once again, we can you can use COVID-19 pretty easily, right? I mean, we could even use Aaron Rodgers again. He, what did he say? He goes, he said, I'm taking ivermectin and I'm using hydroxychloroquine and zinc and stuff like that. And I feel pretty great. I feel really good. Um, so, so there's an example, right? This is an example of what I'm doing works. Explain why that might be misleading. So, um, because you're ignoring the law of large numbers. So when, whenever we make predictions, the more data we have, the better, the more accurate our predictions are. So you have to rely on the larger, uh, you know, number, uh, larger, large amount of uh, data to make predictions. Uh, but you rely on a single anecdote, uh, which is just plainly wrong. And the reason why we do that is. We are not evolved to deal with abstract statistics. We are, you know, it's only like a very contemporary concept. Also, we are used to reasoning in terms of concrete examples that we can experience and we can imagine. So those examples are a lot more powerful than abstract numbers. Right. And I think we use those examples for that reason and we believe those examples for the same reason. I've done the same thing. I was trying to persuade people about masks. Uh, and I finally said, well, you know, I was teaching at Yale last spring. I was teaching a seminar and a pretty, you know, bunch of people all crammed into a room. And my, a lot of my students, being college undergraduates, they got infected. You know, they had infections or they had direct exposures and had to isolate and stuff like that. I had I was making them all masks or they all required to mask anyway in class. I was wearing an N95 and I never got sick. I never got infected. So I'd sometimes, I would sometimes use that as an example because I think – it's more convincing to a lot. I could come up with a study from Sid Rapp out at the University of Minnesota with Michael Osterholm or whatever his name is and, and show, you know, clinical evidence that masks work. But I think we're wired more to believe the personal narrative. Right, exactly. So um, what they do uh, in the charity organization these days is that they present the statistics of like number of people starving in a certain country, but they also add the specific example of, you know, picture of a, a girl who is suffering uh, and so on. So using both ways, both tools would be the best way. Yeah. 
So uh, we probably have only time for one more kind of type of error. I'd like to talk about biased interpretation for just a couple of seconds. I'm going to give an example. I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago, there was this incident on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. It kind of involved three different groups of people. Uh, but one of them, it wound up with a, with a photo of a kid from Covington, Kentucky, I think. Uh, he was kind of face to face with a Native American demonstrator. And he kind of had a little smirk on his face. And the whole thing kind of blew up in the press. So here's this kid and he's got a MAGA hat on and he's there to demonstrate against abortion and and he's being really rude and mean to this Native American guy. And it turned out None of that was particularly accurate. And, and actually, that kid, then he was named Nicholas Sandman. I think he won some judgments or won some settlements from news organizations. But that's how we wanted to interpret it, right? He had a MAGA hat on, so we don't like him. He's not in favor of reproductive choice, so some of us don't like that either. So that smile that he's got on his face is therefore an evil or arrogant smile. Yeah, that's the human nature again. And that is actually also a very, very powerful cognitive system because um, we have to use our knowledge, our beliefs in order to make sense out of the world. Otherwise, it's going to be a complete chaos. So we can recognize a chair as a single object because we already have a concept of chair. But an alien who does not know what a chair is might think of it as something that's sticking out from the floor or attached to the wall also. There's like no object boundary for that alien. So if we cannot use this sort of a top-down processing, we cannot process anything. And it's not that they're always like a selfish or like they have ulterior motives. So, I mean, to me, my favorite example is when my four-year-old uh, son asked me, uh, why is a yellow traffic light called yellow? yellow light. I said, what are you talking about? It's yellow. That's why we call it yellow light. And he said, mom, just look at it. And I looked at it and it was orange. Mm -hmm. It was amber. And I saw it as yellow all my life. And I have no motivation to believe that the traffic light has to be yellow. But that's the way our culture does to us. So what I'm trying to point out is that it's all part of human nature in some sense. And we try to be a little bit more empathetic, you know, don't treat them like uh, aliens just because they have a different views, but more like, okay, it's a part of the human nature. It's really difficult problem to solve, but let's try to solve the problems at hand. Let's focus on what need, what we have to solve uh, rather than trying to change each other's views. Yeah, That's my goal. I think there's something in the Bible about don't focus on the moat in the other person's eye and ignore the beam in your own eye. So we'll have to sort of end there. Uh, Woo Gyung An, uh, a psychology professor and director of the Thinking Lab at Yale University and the author of the book Thinking 101, How to Reason Better and Live Better. Please try to do all of those things today. And if you don't succeed, then it's always tomorrow.